May 2nd, 1963. Shelley, the Playboy Stewart, local DJ on Birmingham, Alabama's main black radio station, WENN, hops on the airwaves to play some tunes for his largely teenage audience. The song is kind of a strange choice for the era, and a little behind the times. It's Big Joe Turner's 1954 jam, Shake, Rattle, and Roll. the song ends, he sends a seemingly out-of-place message to all these youngsters listening to the hippest DJ in town. Hey kids, bring your toothbrush. You ought to brush your teeth. The message was clear to the hundreds of teenagers who heeded the Playboy's call. Grab your things, because you're going to be spending the night in jail. Hello and welcome to Daring Descent, where we uplift stories of remarkable resistance throughout history. I'm your host, back and better than ever, historian and teacher, Jeff DeMoss. Quick note that this episode contains some racist language from the era, which is not appropriate for kids. In today's episode, I'll tell the story of the Birmingham Children's Crusade. In early 1963, the civil rights movement was in a bit of a lull and struggling to gain traction with the American public. A group of civil rights activists are going to turn to the disenfranchised youth of Birmingham, Alabama to help reignite the movement. Hundreds of children answer the call, take to the streets, and purposely fill the city jails. It's one of my favorite examples from history of the power of youth activism. We'll hear from those who took to the streets, from Dr. King and JFK, and we'll hear some of the music that helped fuel the movement. I love this story, and I felt really freaking inspired by it while researching for the last couple of weeks. Let's do it. Section 597 of the Birmingham Public Accommodation Segregation Laws stated, It shall be unlawful for a Negro and a white person to play together or in company with each other in any game of cards, dice, dominoes, or checkers. The same laws mandated that black and white people can never be served food in the same building unless there is a partition that is precisely seven feet or higher between the white and colored sections. Birmingham at this time was given the nickname Bombingham. There were over 60 unsolved bombings of black businesses, homes, and schools. So the KKK and other white supremacist groups are going to be protected by local law enforcement and courts who refuse to protect black crime victims. So the most important background you need to understand to this struggle is that Birmingham is one of the most segregated, backwards, horrifying places for African Americans in the 1960s. In January 1963, Dr. Martin Luther King's Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the SCLC, started planning for a new battleground for their branch of the civil rights movement. They're looking for a next step after this somewhat failed protest movement they had in Albany, Georgia. They settled on Birmingham, and so we call this the Birmingham Movement. This is one of my favorite lessons of the civil rights movement. Take your fight to the belly of the beast. While any activism that stands for righteous ideals should be lauded, there's something extra special about taking the struggle where it is most needed. 
one of the problems that King is going to face is that he's an outsider coming in from Atlanta. And he's going to try to lead this movement. He's going to get some flack from both white and black locals for trying to come in and kind of run the show. And so this, this movement initially struggles to gain steam. The Birmingham movement's first protests in early March didn't gain that much traction. At this point, it's mainly made up of some lunch counter sit-ins, and the press isn't really paying much attention. And if you know anything about protest movements, you certainly got to get as much attention as possible. At the same time in Birmingham, there's a runoff happening in the mayoral election. And it's between the Commissioner of Public Safety, Eugene Bull Connor, and Moderate Lieutenant Governor Albert Boutwell. In the background of this whole story is this unsettled mayoral election. Boutwell is going to win. He's going to get the most votes when they count things. But Connor was an angry, entitled, racist man who refused to concede an election solely because his ego wouldn't let him face reality as is apparently American tradition. So the courts needed to step in and decide the outcome. The movement is getting ton of pressure as outsiders to recognize that some tiny progress might be made if Bull Connor, who we're going to talk all about, is going to lose this race, and if this supposedly moderate Boutwell is going to come in. And so he gets this eternal call from moderates just to be patient. And this is what so many civil rights leaders, including King, just kept on hearing. We'll talk later about the context for this very famous letter, the letter from Birmingham Jail from Dr. King, but I just want to read you a snippet here that talks about this call for patience. We know through painful experience that freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. Frankly, I've never yet engaged in a direct action movement that was well-timed, according to the timetable of those who have not suffered unduly from the disease of segregation. For years now, I have heard the word wait. It rings in the ear of every Negro with a piercing familiarity. This wait has almost always meant never. It has been a tranquilizing thalidomide, relieving the emotional stress for a moment, only to give birth to an ill-formed infant of frustration. We must come to see with the distinguished jurists of yesterday that justice too long delayed is justice denied. So any delay in this protest movement is certainly going to be short-lived. All right, let's talk about this Bull Connor guy. So Bull Connor was the commissioner of public safety in Birmingham in much the same way that Maximilian Robespierre was the head of the Committee of Public Safety during the French Rev's reign of terror. This guy's going to run the city's police force, among other things, and he had a giant ego and big political ambitions. He cared about his public image and wanted to instill fear and respect in the minds of every black person in Birmingham, and he's willing to do that by any means necessary. You can never whip these buds if you don't keep you and them separate. You've got to keep the white and the black separate. Let the law enforcement agencies, that's what you've got them hired for. Long story short, the guy is a caricature of a racist southerner. Okay? He's a horrible, horrible racist man. And so the Birmingham movement at this time is going to be focused on trying to integrate the city of Birmingham. And the idea was to choose a location for their protest that guaranteed a racist, violent police response. On April 12th, Bull Connor is going to have Ralph Abernathy and Dr. King arrested for demonstrating without a permit. And while King's in jail, the movement is going to be kind of at a standstill. He is not completely running every part of the show of the Birmingham movement, but he certainly at this stage in the civil rights movement is going to be the figure with the greatest clout and ability to organize anywhere in the country. 
While King's in jail, local moderate religious leaders wrote a letter in the Birmingham News calling the protests that were happening extreme, unwise, and untimely. King is going to smuggle some scraps of paper out of jail to his lawyer, and his response to those religious leaders would become known as the famous letter from the Birmingham jail, which we'll hear a couple more snippets from throughout this episode. Now, we need someone to fill this void left by King being in jail. So enter in James Bevel, this 27-year-old strategist for the SCLC. He's going to come out of the nonviolent student movement in Nashville, along with John Lewis and Diane Nash, who was married to Bevel at the time. Following King's request, Bevel's going to leave the movement in Mississippi to come to Birmingham. And he's going to start training young people in Birmingham in nonviolence workshops, working together with the SELC education director, Dorothy Cotton. And it's going to be their idea to get the kids to be the center of this protest that we're going to focus in on today. And they go out and they put leaflets in all the high schools, trying to get kids to come to these mass meetings and come to these workshops, training them in the philosophy of nonviolent resistance. What Bevel and Cotton would do is they would recruit popular high schoolers. At the time, they'd be recruiting like guys on the football team and cheerleaders who could then influence their peers to attend these meetings. And when they got there, Bevel and Cotton started helping them more deeply understand the inequalities that they faced as young people in this city. These young people came to recognize things like they had one typewriter for the whole black school while the white school down the road had rooms full of them. They were inheriting hand-me-down football helmets and jerseys from the white schools. Here's high schooler and March participant Freeman Habrowski explaining the realities for young people in Birmingham. We were getting hand-me-down books at points from the white schools. It was clear I couldn't go into the bathroom, into the restroom downtown, that when I went downtown there was no one in a position of power no one of color in a position of power. Everyone was white, police officers, firemen, even the people behind the cash registers. And so you had this black community that was very nurturing with its own black stores and black physician and black attorney. And you go downtown and everything, all power was in the hands of whites. And so there was no conversation between the two groups. And most important, children knew Children of color were well aware we were considered second class. We could not go to Kittyland, the place where you could go and ride the Ferris wheel. We could see where the white children could go. And it was very, very discouraging. And we would ask, why? Why could we not go? Why were we not considered good enough? Our default as humans is violence, not nonviolence. If somebody comes and strikes me, it's not my default reaction to turn the other cheek. And so one of the things that's so important for you to understand about the civil rights movement in the U.S. and so many movements similar to it is that these individuals are not some superheroes. Like Dr. King was not born some little nonviolent baby. You have to train yourself. And so in these trainings, they would show these youngsters footage of the harassment that protesters face during the popular sit-in movement of 1960, when they would sit in at these lunch counters and all these white racists would come in and harass them. And they would show them these things so they knew what type of harassment they may face and how to stay calm and nonviolent while facing the worst. And in this Gandhian tradition, you're going to be purposely trying to provoke a response from your tormentors. You want them to strike you and you want to make them look as bad as possible so you have to be as calm and peaceful in response and that's a difficult thing to be asking some 14 15 year olds to do 
And so these organizers in the movement, including a guy by the name of Wyatt Walker, start to get the idea that they're going to send young people into the streets to protest and try to provoke a response from Bull Connor and the local police. And so the same night that King is arrested, Wyatt Walker holds a mass meeting for students and their parents. And he says, listen, some of these students say they have got to go to school, but they will get more education in five days in the city jail than they will in five months in a segregated school. An important side note is that these and every future mass meeting I mentioned in this episode is going to be attended either by Birmingham cops in plain sight or undercover FBI agents. And so you're going to see a lot of the planning for this movement be out in plain sight for those who want to be giving the response to the protests. In late April, King gets out of jail on bond. And at this stage, only a few hundred people had been arrested at this point, way below what he expected. The whole movement is purposely trying to get people arrested to draw attention to the ridiculously racist and backwards laws that exist in the city. And so King asks for volunteers to go to jail in Birmingham. He's looking for some big protest action that will clearly demonstrate the everyday violence facing the black citizens of Birmingham. And adults are, are dwindling in numbers who are willing to take up this cause. And there's legitimate fears for most adults in the city that they will immediately lose their jobs if they get arrested. And so who responds? It's mainly elementary and high school students. Movement leaders like Walker and James Bevel are going to apply for an official permit to be allowed to march on May 2nd, and they get denied. So before you see what goes down, I want to make it crystal clear. They tried to, to follow the backwards laws that existed this time and weren't given the ability to publicly express their voice in the legal way law enforcement was going to allow. One of the things they were doing at this time that actually was a little bit successful was they were having a boycott of businesses that were openly promoting segregation. And white business owners in Birmingham were starting to feel this economic pressure. And so debate starts to break out among the adults of Birmingham, whether it's the organizers of the movement or whether it's just the, the people in the community as a whole. And they're trying to figure out whether they should let the kids go on this march. That's what's starting to be planned. The wheels are already in motion for this. It's people like Wyatt T. Walker and Bevel who are saying yes. And most local parents are wavering or shouting no. King is conflicted about the kids. He thought they were too young and, and wanted them to maybe influence their parents. And he's going to face a ton of criticism from the black middle class in Birmingham about using kids. And so he's kind of torn in these two directions. The cons of kids going on this march is that obviously it's dangerous to pit kids against Bull Connor. And this should be the adults fight to fight. Another con is that the white community would freak out about black kids joining the front lines of the movement. But there's quite a few pros. This movement is being led by young people already, and this could force white moderates to the negotiating table over segregation. Another pro is that it had been over two weeks since anything related to the civil rights movement had appeared on the front page. It would definitely draw national attention to get some youngsters in the streets for this movement, and maybe it would even get the White House's attention and possible sympathy. As someone who spent the last dozen years working with high school students on a daily basis, I certainly have seen the value of the youthful political energy contained within our country's teenagers. Here's the way Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee leader John Lewis put it when it came to youngsters. We considered it natural and necessary to involve children, adolescents, in the movement. 
We weren't far from being teenagers ourselves, and we shared many of the same basic feelings of adolescence. Unbound idealism. Courage unclouded by practical concerns. Faith and optimism untrampled by the realities of the adult world. So King is on the fence, but sort of kind of coming around to this idea. And when people start calling the Birmingham movement's leaders out about possibly involving kids, his response is something like, where the heck do you get off acting like you care about the kids when you've been silent, quote, during the centuries when our segregated social system had been misusing and abusing Negro children? One of his partners in fantastic crime, Ralph Abernathy, said, We'd been demonstrating for more than eight years by the time we got to Birmingham. And while people had indeed been brutalized by policemen, we were reasonably certain that even the most mean-spirited cop would refrain from clubbing a very small child. Oh boy. It's Thursday, May 2nd, 1963. Everybody in the movement calls this D-Day for Desegregation Day. All the students of Birmingham are going to be invited to a mass meeting at noon at the 16th Street Baptist Church. If you recognize that church, it's because a few months after this, that's where there's going to be that very famous bombing where those four young girls are going to be killed. You know, I actually haven't seen any evidence in the historical record that King, at this point, really firmly made the call to send the kids in. It seems like he had come around to the idea mostly, but the wheels were already so firmly in motion from Bevel, Walker, and the students themselves that King would have been too late if he had tried to pump the brakes. Bevel recruited popular local DJs, Shelley the Playboy Stewart and Tall Paul Dudley White, to help send out the message on D-Day for all the young people to gather. The KKK had previously cut down the radio tower for these guys' popular black radio station, WENN, and both of these DJs were known for refusing to fully play by the Jim Crow conventions of Birmingham. Stewart would frequently call white women who called in Darlene or Sweetheart instead of Miss So-and-so. So these two guys mainly helped with sending out secret signals to the youth of the city throughout this march and protest campaign. And the signals were to tell them when to gather at meetings or marches throughout the campaign. They would play songs that were out of place for the era, like Shake, Rattle, and Roll, which we heard at the top of the episode. Or they would play Chuck Berry's School Days. As soon as three o'clock rolls around, you finally lay your burden down. Close up your books, get out of your seat. Down the halls and into the street. These DJs would say phrases that were really out of place for their personalities, like, you better pack your toothbrush, you know lunch will be served. And they just kept talking about the day being D-Day, and that code had already passed around the youth of Birmingham. So hundreds of teenagers gather outside and inside the 16th Street Baptist Church. Some of them are as young as six. There are going to be some adults that are certainly going to take to the streets, but this is definitely going to be focused in and mainly led by young people. The gathering happens at noon on a Thursday. Some principals had tried to lock the school's front gates to keep the students inside. Here's protester Gwendolyn Cook-Webb in 2018 telling the story of her friend Eddie giving her the signal to go while she was inside her classroom. When Eddie came with his sign, and on his sign it said, it's time, and it was time to go. And in looking around, trying to see and, and hoping and praying that the others would come along, but I had to put this little leg up on the... Um, window seal. The doors were chained 
And the only other way we could get out was to go through the windows. And when I got ready to jump, I felt like a gazelle, you know. And being a cheerleader, I knew either he was going to catch me or I was going to have to tumble. But, but Eddie was there, and he caught me. And here come the other kids just jumping out of the windows like it was um, a waterfall. And to see all of them, it made me proud. And it made them proud to be able to do exactly what they promised that they would do. I heard one story from a student in the excellent documentary, Mighty Times. They said that their teacher was nervous of professional repercussions if they helped their students go join the protests. So at noon, they just really obviously turned and stared straight at the blackboard for a few minutes without moving while all the students jumped out the window. 800 students from high school to elementary age skipped school that day. At the church, a bunch of these kids are getting a last-minute crash course in nonviolence training, and they're singing these freedom songs. And all the while, outside, Bull Connor has men deployed right next to the church at Kelly Ingram Park. This park is where a lot of our story is going to take place. The park serves as the de facto dividing line between the black and white sides of town. So Connor's strategy was to contain any protests in the black part of town and stop any marchers getting into downtown, the white area. Remember that cops have been at most of the mass meetings where the protests were openly being planned and the FBI passed along any info they uncovered to local police. All right, we'll be right back with the students taking to the streets right after this quick ad break. At 1 p.m., Waves of 50 kids head away from the church in a peaceful march. The refrain from the students is, We shall The student signs say, Segregation is a sin. Love God and thy neighbor. And I'll die to make this land my home. The mood is jovial. Everyone is laughing and singing. A police captain comes and tries to convince a small group of elementary students to go home and they keep on marching. And so the first wave of 50 kids, as they took to the streets and they march out where the cops are there waiting for them, are arrested. On comes another wave of 50. They're arrested. Then another wave. Walker and Bevel are inside the church as the generals organizing the troops. Walker's giving out marching orders via walkie-talkie to other organizers in the streets. Walker later said, we were sending them out this way and that way. Oh man, it was a great time to be alive. Some of the young people are going to obviously immediately run the other way when they saw the heavily armed cops, but most of them are going to follow orders and follow their hearts and approach the cops, kneel, pray, and get arrested. The arrests are theoretically for marching without a parade permit, but we know what they're really for. So Walker's going to instruct some waves to change their route to the white downtown so white shoppers will see them. He also had some men go far away from the park and call in false alarms to siphon some of the police away from the park. He later admitted that he kept this little detail secret from Dr. King, who would not have been a huge fan. One of the cops turns to local preacher slash Birmingham movement leader Fred Shuttlesworth and asks, Hey Fred, how many more have you got? At least a thousand more. Oh, God Almighty. Time Magazine is going to later describe the demonstrations on this day as being a bit like a picnic. The youngsters clapped and sang excitedly, and when 
Connor's men arrested them, they scampered almost merrily into patrol wagons. By 4 p.m., 600 kids are in jail. Cops ran out of paddy wagons and had to use school buses to get them all to the station. Police Captain Glenn V. Evans later recalled a convo another officer had with them while they were rounding up kids that day. He said, Evans, 10 or 15 years from now, we will look back on this day and we will say, how stupid can you be? The first day actually ends without any direct, super violent clash between the police and the protesters. It's just these mass arrests. And for these youngsters that are in jail, we're talking about 75 young people crammed into cells meant for eight. One jailed young boy who's maybe four is asked by a reporter why he joined the protests. And his response? Tedum. Still working on his pronunciation of freedom. Some of these young people are going to spend the next five or seven days locked up. Here's one of my all-time favorite freedom songs that was sung by some of the youngsters in jail. Ain't gonna let nobody turn me around. Turn me around. Keep on talking, marching up to freedom land. So much of the music of the movement has this beautiful call and response structure to it. Anybody can pick it up, and so many of them are based off of not just the sound, but sometimes they're literal remixes of spirituals that so many of the marchers would know from church. And that one just ooh, really hits me at my core. I love that one. So at the mass meeting that night that's held by the organizers, Bevel's going to say, there ain't going to be no meeting Monday night because every Negro is going to be in jail by Sunday night. And he calls for Friday to be double D-Day. King is crystal clearly in favor of students being part of the protest now. He tells the crowd, I have been inspired and moved today. I have never seen anything like it. Come Friday... The park is filled in the morning with 400 curious friends, office workers, and a few rabble-rousers waiting to see if the same scene breaks out as Thursday. Police are going to try to cut off the downtown route with fire trucks, cop cars, and school buses. The kids are going to march again. An elderly woman shouts to the protesters, Sing! Children, sing! And the first group of 60 kids are singing when the cops stop them. But the jails are full. Literally full. So the cops strategize to disperse the protesters rather than arrest them. Besides this first group of 60, there's 1,500 kids still back at the church heading out at intervals in different directions on this day. And the cops are going to tell them to disperse or, quote, you're going to get wet. Here's protester Mamie Chalmers describing the scene. Bull Connor, he called out the Birmingham Fire Department, told them, turn the water hose on them niggas and they won't have to take a bath. He ordered that that was an order, direct order from him, and that's what they did. And today I'm deaf in one ear because of that. Dr. King explained to us that this is a nonviolent march. You might get kicked, you might get spit on, but tell the person that's doing, I still love you just the same. Well, on that hot day in August 63, I was eager. As they say, I was all fired up and ready to participate again, do anything that I could. 
The local fire department gives the cops an assist with their brutality, and the fire hoses are turned on the protesters. And the kids keep singing. I woke up this morning with the man Hoses that they're using were designed for tackling long-range fires. They could knock bricks loose from buildings and strip the bark off of trees. They packed a punch of two hoses into one nozzle. Supposedly, the fire department was reluctant to help, but Connor ordered them to turn them on or go home. Some kids had the clothes ripped right off their backs with 100 pounds of pressure. There's these amazing pictures from this day that you need to see to fully understand this. Just Google the Birmingham Children's Crusade or check out our Instagram page for some that I've curated. There's this very famous photo of children joining hands in a long chain to keep from being blasted down the street, and they go towards the fire hoses. A local black millionaire by the name of A.G. Gaston is watching from his office building. He'd been a moderate who wished King would stop stirring up trouble in his city and he immediately is converted to the movement. He calls up his lawyer and says, they've turned the fire hoses on a little black girl, and they're rolling that girl right down the middle of the street. The hoses? They weren't quickly mobile with the shifting crowds of protesters moving from place to place. So next, they're going to call in the canine units. Eight attack dog units start going after the crowd in the park. Bull Connor shouts, I want to see the dogs work. Look at those N-words run. Unsurprisingly, people are going to throw rocks at the dogs, cops, and firefighters who are attacking them. But most of the protesters have no choice but to run home or back to the church. Three teenagers are going to be bitten so bad on this day that they're hospitalized. By 3 p.m., there's another 250 arrested. The jails on this day get so full that they start keeping kids locked up at the local fairgrounds. The park is cleared, and less than half the students who were at the church had actually left it. Another 500 start gearing up for the next day. Dr. King is going to send a telegram that night to President Kennedy. He says, Will you permit this recrudescence of violence in Birmingham to threaten our lives and deny our rights? He got no response from Kennedy. Importantly, President Kennedy, the people of Birmingham, and the whole nation was seeing the pictures in their newspapers and footage on TV of the canine and fire hose attacks. CBS correspondent Eric Severide's coverage noted, a snarling police dog set up upon a human being is recorded in the permanent photoelectric file of every human being's brain. JFK said the images made him sick. He kept referencing the now very famous photo that Kennedy saw in the papers that day of high schooler Walter Gadsden standing firm while a German shepherd lunges at his stomach. The Soviets, in the middle of the Cold War here, were always looking for examples of American hypocrisy as they claimed to be the freest nation on earth. So the Pravda headline was, Monstrous Crimes Among Racists in the United States. The mass meeting that night was packed. King said, Parents, don't worry about your kids. They are suffering for what they believe, and they are suffering to make this nation a better nation. Jail helps you to rise above the miasma of everyday life. If they want some books, 
We will get them. I catch up on my reading every time I go to jail. <laughs> he said, dogs? Well, I'll tell you. When I was growing up, I was dog-bitten. <gasps> the crowd gasps in horror. And he says, for nothing. So I don't mind being bitten by a dog for standing up for freedom. MLK is going to be called out by tons of people, including Bobby Kennedy, Malcolm X, for using children in this protest and putting them in harm's way. Mayor Boutwell, or soon-to-be mayor, claims that once he assumes office as mayor, he's going to give immediate and determined attention to racial issues in the city. But listen, like most moderates, he's vague and non-committal. In the middle of the protest, he spends most of his time solely criticizing black leaders for allowing children to be put in harm's way and not actually talking about any of the issues that necessitated these protests in the first place. When King gets called out by all these people, his response is, again, where were you when these children's lives were being crushed by segregation? Where were you then? King later told the story of a high schooler he met who joined the protest despite his parents forbidding him from doing so. The boy supposedly apologized to his dad for disobeying him, but said that he pledged himself to the movement and that it, you know he admitted that he would have snuck out of the house even if his dad was there trying to stop him. He told his dad, For you see, I'm not doing this only because I want to be free. I'm doing it because also I want freedom for you and mama, and I want it to come before you die. So after day two of these protests, the White House... I guess, wakes up a little bit to realize that they got they got to do something here, even if they feel like they can't do everything that they probably should. So the Assistant Attorney General, Burke Marshall, working for uh, Bobby Kennedy's Department of Justice's Civil Rights Division, he tells King that he's coming to Birmingham to convince people to stop demonstrating. And Marshall says, an injured, maimed, or dead child is a price that none of us can afford. Marshall specifically calls for King to call everything off until the courts can decide the mayoral election, which is, you know, Im impossible for me to understand. It's clearly just a stalling BS tactic because I don't get why any protest should hinge on the results of that election. I don't, even, I don't even understand why that would be connected to it. So clearly just a tactic here. And so Marshall comes to Birmingham to try to broker some truce between white business owners and leaders and black activists. Since Marshall is acting on behalf of the Department of Justice, he is shocked when King says, no, we're not stopping the protests. Marshall's so surprised he phones up Washington and says, I guess King is just confused. He is not. He told reporters, we're ready to negotiate, but we intend to negotiate from strength. The Kennedy administration's whole narrative in this is that they just don't have the power to step in here. But the problem is, is they're not even using moral public pressure to push the issue. They're hemming and hawing and accomplishing nothing. And so any lip service they may have been paying at this point to caring about this, they're not actually stepping in. They can say all they want that they feel like they don't have the federal power. This is a state issue. But children are being attacked by police dogs and thrown in jail for peacefully demonstrating. You should probably do something as the president of the United States who supposedly cares about civil rights. You know, JFK is in the middle of working on a massive tax cut for the American people, and he needed some racist Southern Democratic support in order to get this legislative win. And so he's not exactly chomping at the bit to uh, get directly involved in these complicated civil rights clashes. Just for fun, here's Bull Connor's thoughts on the Kennedys. You know... Those Kennedys, 
up there in Washington, that little old Bobby Sox and his brother, the president. They'd give anything in the world if we had some trouble here. If we don't have any trouble, we can beat them at your own game. Bobby Kennedy had been telling people that the Birmingham movement was ill-timed. Like most white moderates, they may have supported much of the ideals of the movement, but would have preferred for things to happen on their own much slower timeline. Here's one of my favorite King quotes from a letter from a Birmingham jail. I must confess that over the last few years I've been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I've almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in the stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor, or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I can't agree with your methods of direct action, who paternalistically feels that he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by the myth of time and who constantly advises the Negro to wait until a more convenient season. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. After Friday's attacks, the marches continue through the weekend. Some young people start showing up to the march in their swimsuits, which is just one of my most favorite righteous middle fingers in history. It's good stuff. Here's Freeman Habrowski again describing his encounter over the weekend with Bull Connor. We got up to City Hall, got to, to the steps, and I, I was, and there was the police commissioner. There was Bull Connor, and I was so afraid. And he said, what do you want, little Negro? Oh. And I mustered up the courage, and I looked up at him, and I said, sir, the southern word for sir, we want to kneel and pray for our freedom. That's all I said. That's all we wanted to do. I was to pray and pray for our freedom to go to, be able to go to the best schools and to have all the rights that Americans are supposed to have. It was just that simple. But as you know, because there was no permit for us to participate, to have a peaceful demonstration, we had, they had the right to put us in jail and he did pick me up and he did, and he did spit in my face. He really did. He was so angry. Crowds now number more than a thousand who are watching the student protesters. As they and the protesters get the fire hose, the crowd starts throwing rocks, bottles, and bricks. James Bevel comes out in the crowd with a bullhorn pleading for the crowd to go home and just let the student protesters follow their plan. 2,000 churchgoers file out of New Pilgrim Baptist Church on their way to hold a prayer vigil outside the jail for the imprisoned kids. They're met by cops at the crossroad, marking the transition from the black to white side of town. Bull Connor and Captain Evans ask them to stop and return to the church. Reverend Charles Billups leads the group, and he kneels down right in front of the cops in prayer. All 2,000 people join him and do the same. Billups all of a sudden pops up and shouts at the cops, Turn on your water! Turn loose your dogs! We will stand here till we die! Connor turns to his men and orders, damn it, turn on the hoses. The officers and firefighters refuse. The 
crowd heads to a nearby park and holds a prayer service. Come Monday morning, there's 2,000 people in jail, mainly kids. It's going to be another 500 before Monday's over. Over 10,000 people fill four churches for Monday night's mass meetings. Ralph Abernathy brags at one of the meetings. He says, Today I was in a room with one of the top men in the Justice Department, talking about Burke Marshall, who paced the floor, couldn't sit down, changed from chair to chair. So, you know, they're clearly getting their desired response from Washington. They want them freaking out. He goes on to say, Before yesterday, we filled up the jail. Today, we filled up the jail yard. And tomorrow, when they look up and see that number coming, I don't know what they're going to do. The protests continue on Tuesday. And dozens of protesters on that day make it through police barricades into downtown. They're met by fire hoses and protesters respond with bricks and stones. Local reverend and SELC founder and Birmingham movement leader Fred Shuttlesworth is knocked into a wall by a fire hose. He's taken away in an ambulance. Bull Connor says he was sorry Shuttlesworth wasn't taken away in a hearse. Reverend King makes some demands during his sermon that night. The hour has come for the federal government to take a forthright stand on segregation in the United States. I'm not criticizing the president, but we're going to have to help him. There were so many prisoners on Tuesday that it takes four hours to serve breakfast in jail the next morning. JFK's cabinet this whole time has been calling white business leaders in Birmingham trying to make some plan for integration, while simultaneously telling the press that they're not involved in negotiations. White business leaders actually agreed to directly negotiate with black leaders, including Dr. King. You're actually never going to find in this process that any local political leaders or any white leaders as a whole outside of the business world are willing to negotiate. It's the business leaders who are feeling the economic pressure who are the ones who are willing to make some type of capitulation when it comes to segregation, potentially. So Burke Marshall from the DOJ, his attempts at negotiations are kind of problematic. All the white leaders want is kind of capitulation. They want the protest to stop with zero demands being met. There's this vague promise of opening negotiations for integration if they stop demonstrating, and King says, integrate, then we'll stop. Marshall comes to quickly realize that King will never back down until all public facilities in Birmingham are desegregated. Come Wednesday, May 8th, it seems like some type of agreement has been made, and King is going to announce the general terms of that agreement to the public. Interestingly, King agreed not to publicly disclose all the details of this agreement because the white business owners were afraid of retribution from Connor and other racists. And who this is certainly a tricky thing to agree to. When King announces the agreement, he keeps things really, really vague and says that the protests are going to stop and we, you know, some general concessions have been made. We're on the path towards integration. But it actually looks publicly like not much was won. So here are the terms of the secret agreement, this excellent, excellent victory that is going to be won. Within three days of protest stopping, department store fitting rooms are going to be integrated. Within 30 days of that mayoral legal battle being resolved, toilets and drinking fountains will be integrated in Birmingham. 60 days after, a city government's in place, lunch counters are going to be integrated, and at least one black salesperson or cashier would be hired at each downtown store. Fifteen days after the protests, a biracial committee is going to be established. 
And the final important piece of the negotiations is that the thousands who are still jailed are going to be released on a very low bail. So no doubt the greatest credit for these concessions being given needs to go to the young students who were in the streets. But a little bit of credit certainly needs to be given to Burke Marshall and the Kennedy administration for helping broker some of these negotiations with these leaders on the ground. Now, Bull Connor's not willing to let this thing go down easy. Right before it seems like the crisis is over, Connor increases the bail for King and Abernathy to stay out of jail from $300 each to $2,500 each. Actually, daring dissent favored attorney William Kunstler and musician Harry Belafonte are working to get the bail money together, and they cobble it together from a bunch of sources. When Kunstler hops on a plane to go pay the bail, it turns out they got beat to the punch by that local black billionaire A.G. Gaston, who, working with Bobby Kennedy, paid the bail. King and Abernathy didn't even want to get bailed out. They were actually pissed they got bailed out before a ton of the kids did, but nonetheless, you've got some help coming from some interesting sources. Although there was some pretty low bail set for each individual person jailed, there's 790 kids still in jail. And so the total cost to get them out is $237,000. So Bobby Kennedy works together with Harry Belafonte, who worked to get money from the AFL-CIO, United Steel Workers, the New York Transport Workers Union, Apparently, some secretly came from New York Governor Nelson Rockefeller, who you may remember from our Attica episode. And so after all the kids get released, many of the students are actually going to be suspended from school by the school board. So there's certainly no absolute victories in these circumstances. It's the day after King announced the agreement, and he's back in Atlanta. Bombs hit King's brother's home in Birmingham in the motel where King was staying. Angry crowds gather, there's arson, looting. The crowd is on the verge of dispersing when 250 Alabama state troopers sent by Governor George Wallace are going to savagely attack the crowds without provocation. You may know Governor Wallace from his 1963 inaugural address where he says, Segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. By the way, when Wallace ran for governor again in the 70s and 80s, he received a gigantic majority of the black vote in the state. He was a complicated man. That night, six businesses, a few stores, and an apartment building all burned to the ground. And this chaos was clearly orchestrated by racist leaders in the state trying to halt this agreement. And this is a huge part of the civil rights movement. We can't take any story of the civil rights movement and treat it as an absolute victory that took us on this steady, complete, absolute path towards progress. We need to celebrate that progress is made and then recognize that racial progress in this country is always going to be followed by white backlash. Back at the White House, JFK and his brother Bobby meet to figure out what the heck to do. They're freaked out about black violence and also nervous to look like they're doing nothing for justice. They'd been spending most of the crisis thinking, remember, that the federal government didn't have legal authority to do much of anything to help. Bobby said, the group that's gotten out of hand is not the white people, it's the Negroes, by and large. This is behind the scenes. He's not saying those things publicly. But they're also concerned that Governor Wallace is going to cause more state violence, which could lead to a response from black Muslims, the boogeyman for them at the time, so they need to do something to step in. And what the government does is a pretty radical move in the grand scheme of the civil rights movement. They send troops to army bases near Birmingham, and then they finally decide to federalize troops of the Alabama National Guard. The troops are going to leave two weeks later, and the situation in Birmingham is going to fully settle down, at least for the time being. 
Maybe the biggest victory for the people of Birmingham is that Bull Connor is out of office. The Alabama Supreme Court rules that Connor lost the election fair and square. He's no longer the commissioner of public safety for the time being, and his him and his forces are ordered to vacate their offices. The new city council that comes in creates a commission on community affairs. And then we've got over the, the next few weeks in June on into July, we have water fountains being desegregated in Birmingham. The city council is going to fully repeal Birmingham segregation laws. And then the lunch counters are going to be formally desegregated. This is a gigantic win. It is direct action from people in the streets that resulted in these changes. Just a few weeks after Birmingham is formally desegregated, Governor Wallace is going to stand in the doorway to try to block the admission of two black students, Vivian Malone and James Hood, to the University of Alabama. It's this big media circus. With the Alabama National Guard federalized by JFK, they order Wallace to step aside and let the students come in. This is a major, major, major step in the direction of the White House demonstrating that they care at least some about civil rights. And on TV that night, JFK delivers his report to the American people on civil rights. We are confronted primarily with a moral issue. It is as old as the scriptures and is as clear as the American Constitution. The heart of the question is whether all Americans are to be afforded equal rights and equal opportunities. Whether we are going to treat our fellow Americans as we want to be treated. If an American because his skin is dark, cannot eat lunch in a restaurant open to the public. If he cannot send his children to the best public school available, if he cannot vote for the public officials who represent him, if in short he cannot enjoy the full and free life which all of us want, then who among us would be content to have the color of his skin changed and stand in his place? Who among us would then be content with the counsels of patience and delay? One hundred years of delay have passed since President Lincoln freed the slaves, yet their heirs, their grandsons, are not fully free. They are not yet freed from the bonds of injustice. They are not yet, not yet freed from social and economic oppression. And this nation, for all its hopes and all its boasts, will not be fully free until all its citizens are free. Two weeks later, he sends a draft of the 1964 Civil Rights Act to Congress, and no doubt the biggest influence on that is the situation down in Birmingham. The marches led to tons of focus from the American people on the movement and huge fundraising gains for the civil rights movement as a whole. It's going to play a big role also in making the movement national, getting everyone across the country to actually understand the goals and the tactics of the movement. Before Birmingham, 4% of Americans believed civil rights was our most urgent issue. After, 52% believed it was. President Kennedy said, The civil rights movement should thank God for Bull Connor. He's helped it as much as Abraham Lincoln. There's nothing like a good over-the-top enemy to unite people together in a cause. Wyatt Walker said, Birmingham would have been lost if Bull had let us go down to the city hall and pray. He was the perfect adversary. Connor wanted publicity. He wanted his name in the paper. In the immediate aftermath of Birmingham, there were 930 integration demonstrations in 115 cities across the South. Before the year was over, 300 cities had agreed to some level of integration. 
It also brought more intense white backlash in Birmingham and beyond as they found new grounds to wage their racist battles. But certainly the biggest impact was that it led many people to believe that we need new federal legislation to be able to deal with some of these issues of segregation across the South. The Kennedys were nervous that violence could spread to other black cities, and they viewed legislation as a way to possibly curb that. This isn't to discount some of their actual support for civil rights. You know, they had some actual belief in the merits of the legislation, but a huge motivating factor was that it was a legal and logistical disaster to try to figure out how and to what degree the Fed should step in to put out every civil rights fire across the country. So federal legislation with teeth could go a long way towards helping make the decision for intervention easier for them. This Civil Rights Act in 1964 is a big freaking deal. It across the board prohibits discrimination on the basis of race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. It provides protection from racist practices in the workplace. It's going to prohibit discrimination in public accommodations and federally funded programs. It's going to have some important voting rights protections, and it's going to have some things that further desegregate America's schools. So this is an absolute landmark piece of legislation. All right, here's my final thoughts. The Birmingham movement was fledgling before young people took to the streets. It produced somewhat swift and tangible change in one of the most backwards places in America. Nowhere near every victory was won, but it was a giant step in a positive direction. We can simultaneously celebrate the victories of the civil rights movement while acknowledging that the work was never fully accomplished. The Children's March is one blueprint to continue to fight for that change today. Take to the streets, refuse to compromise with the hateful, expose the tactics of the hateful for all to see. Almost no white opponents were converted to the cause of civil rights in Birmingham. Instead, it was mass organized action that disrupted a deeply entrenched system and galvanized allies who were otherwise afraid or apathetic. Without question, a significant amount of credit for the success in Birmingham needs to go to Walker, Bevel, Cotton, King, and other adult organizers. But at the end of the day, it was young people willing to fight to expose the injustices they faced who helped steer this country in a better direction. Thank you so much, you, my wonderful, beautiful listener of Daring Descent, for listening to our episode today. You can find a list of sources using this episode in the show notes. And if you're a regular listener to the show, I appreciate you so, so, so much. If you'd like to show a tiny bit of your appreciation, there's a link in the episode notes to make a little donation to the show. Any amount would go a long ways towards helping me continue this show. You can also help out by rating and subscribing wherever you get your podcasts and following at Daring Descent on Instagram. And let's not forget, ultimately, history is a practice in empathy. We'll send it out with a piece of a song from the civil rights struggle called I'm On My Way by Mamie Brown and Carlton Reese. There's nothing you can do, nothing you can do to, turn around. to turn me around. There's nothing you can do, nothing you can do to turn me around.